right, everybody, welcome back. I'm Johnny McCoy, CEO and founder of White Flag, which is a uh, platform that you can download on, on Google Play or in the Apple App Store, and you can instantly and anonymously connect with somebody else who's going through the same issues as you. Those are mental health challenges, struggles in life. Um, it's, just a re- it's just a real, authentic way to connect with somebody else who's been through what you've been through. And, um, you know, me and Matt have kind of talked about this and I'll introduce our guests here in a second. Really excited to have them there. But, you know, I created White Flag um, out of necessity. I needed it and I wanted it after I got out of my recovery um, treatment facility in Florida. Uh, there, I just couldn't find the magic that I found within the community that I met in treatment. And so I knew that I wasn't going to go far on my healing journey unless I met people who could tell me how it's really going to be other people who could tell me, Hey, look, I'm, I'm doing really bad as well, but you know, we're, we're still alive. We're still breathing. You're not the only one going through this. And it just drastically and dramatically has changed my life. So we put it all that concept all into an app. Um, and you can download it for free right now in the app store. And as we've done this journey, um, we continuously build our team. We've got some amazing members of our team. You guys have heard from brave Dave. He's been on a podcast and um, you know, we're going to have uh, Nate Boyer, our chief of veteran affairs on here. Justin Simmons uh, who plays for the Broncos is going to be on. But uh, today um, we've got one of our newest uh, members to the white flag team. And that's Matt Rakelboom. Did I get that right, Matt? You did. I'm very impressed, man. <laughs> yes, we just went over it a minute ago. But for those of you out there with PTSD or trauma, you know how memory loss issues are especially that short-term stuff coming off of Xanax. But I use this term loosely. Matt's an influencer, but he's a mental health advocate first, I believe. Um, Going to his pages, TikTok, Instagram. I mean, it's amazing content. And you'll hear Matt talk about his story, um, but it's all centered around, you know, the stuff that he goes through with his ADHD. Um, That's probably what he's most known for and what I'm most interested in because I don't have ADHD. My wife does, though. Um, So... You know, Matt's making some videos for us to help expand our reach to get the the um, the people who need this resource, uh, get it to them and in front of them. And so we're lucky to have Matt a part of our team. He's already made a video that's like already on its way to going viral. And so, Matt, my celebrity crush at the moment, I appreciate you coming on, man. Thank you so much, Johnny, man. I am so excited to be here. I think this is this has been a podcast that I've been looking forward to recording so much lately. And definitely I'm I'm looking forward to getting started, man. I just want to jump in, honestly. Yeah, no, I you know, for for me, I and I say uh my celebrity crush because Matt is a, a killer in the comments. His video that went went viral or is going viral right now. Uh I saw somebody ask him if he was single, and then I saw uh, somebody else say, I want to give you a kiss because this is such a, a amazing app, um, which is great because, you know, people are, they're really, they're really getting behind your videos and, you know, our idea and the, and the app and the app store. But uh, yeah, I thought it was funny. You know, I've been out of the game for, for a while. Uh, so yeah, I'm vicariously uh, enjoying, um, you know, the, the attention that you're getting, you know, and, and it's, it's a good thing because, you know, you really do care about your followers and that's what sticks out to us the most is, you know, these people, they listen to you for, for comic relief about their issues. Um, some of his videos are really funny. Uh, and, and then they also listen to you about, you know, when you, when you talk straight to them, like, Hey, listen, you know, I'm going through this, I've been through that and this, this, uh, resource may help. So we, you know, we're so glad to have you a part of the team, man. And we we know that we're going to reach a lot of people because of you. 
Wicked, man. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. There is, with my content, what I always try and make sure that people understand is that this stuff is real. We can make memes, we can make, you know, trendy sounds behind us, but I need to let you know that underneath this, you know, big smile that I have and everybody knows me for my goofy persona, I make sure to make content about my anxiety. Uh, I make I make videos about self-harm, about addiction, about everything that I possibly can, because I want everyone to know that this is real. This is not media coverage that is just, you know, we can cover up all the bad sides and let's just make them look awesome. I, I, I want to use this platform to really reach people and let them know that you can go through terrible times and come out with a better life than you ever knew. And yeah, that, yeah. We're both testaments to that, man. So they, the, these people have hopefully heard my story. Um, my story was in episodes one through three. It's long, but you know, people like to understand where the idea for the company came from, but I haven't really heard the origin story of you, Matt. So how did you get started on your journey? Did somebody notice something about you and say, Hey, you, you may want to check into this or was it like me? And I, it, I, there was an explosion that took place and they kind of triaged me and said, yeah, you've been living with PTSD and anxiety your whole life. Right. <laughs> you know, okay. So for me, the best way that I can actually start this off is to tell you a little bit about my childhood situation. So when I was younger, I grew up in a town of 4,000 people, small town country boy. And, uh, you know, I went to, I went to a public school that had about 400 people in the entire school. So naturally when you got something different about you, people notice cause you're one of four. You yeah. know what I mean? Like that, there's not a lot of people that had very different things going on around them. And for me, unfortunately, I showed the signs of every typical, you know, white hyper male and with ADHD is I had unbelievable anger issues. I didn't want to pay attention in class. I was unbelievably hyper at all times, never could focus. So I got my ADHD diagnosis as early as 12 years old. Back in the early 2000s, the issue with something like this is that there was not a lot of accurate information for what we know today. And back then, you know, my way of coping with my ADHD was, first of all, when they were giving me my diagnosis, they might as well figuratively and literally just sat there with a slingshot full of medication, just ready to fire it down my throat. <laughs> and the, the issue with that first off before anything else was that it worked. And I will never forget this one. It, it's, it's borderline traumatic for me thinking about this nowadays because I'm holistic. I do not take any kind of medication for anything ever. And uh, I remember sitting in the psychologist's office with my father and he looked at them and went, this is a miracle drug. Yeah. This, this made my son, my son, he is amazing. Now he's fantastic. And you know, he had, he was praising them for giving me this pill that made me a, a contributing member of society is essentially <laughs> the way that he saw me. And the issue came when I stopped feeling the effects as much. When I started getting used to the medication, my dad took me back in there. I went, he's showing symptoms again. What do we do? And the psychologist went, let's raise it. Oh, so let's raise the medication and let's raise the medication and let's raise the medication. And it got to the point where by the time I was 17 years old, nobody actually knew this at the time because things have been very, uh, things have changed like crazy, but I was on more than double the legal limits wow. of ADHD medication. And this caused me while going through the early hormonal phase of being a preteen um, that this ended up causing me to have terrible acne, terrible anxiety, terrible discomfort to anything in life, horrible addiction at a very young age because of the uh, Adderall is amphetamines. So yeah. we need to, we need to understand there's a very addictive element to this, to anybody listening that is considering Adderall. It still does amazing things. That is not something to deter you, but 
it's something very real that I need to understand. And I got introduced early on. This is a very negative thing to say. And I want to say that I cannot wrap my entire premise of what I'm about to tell you guys in this podcast around this one saying, but this medication taught me that pills and something to alter who I am is the way to make people like me. Ah, this is the start to my entire story. Yeah. I was not allowed to go outside without my normal people pill. My friends would even point out to me, they'd be like, Matt, you didn't take your medication, did you? Mm. Whenever I didn't, because they'd notice me being a hyper person and being, you know, a little bit moving around too much and all kinds of crazy things. And this taught me very on, take a pill, people like you. And then all of a sudden, growing up in a small town, I don't know if you can relate to this or not, but we found things like marijuana and alcohol very early on in our lives. Anybody with an older brother or sister, you know, we went to parties as early as around 12 or 13 years old where there was already booze there. We were already getting drunk and having oh, yeah. fun and small town field. I mean, we had field parties every single weekend, anything you could possibly do to get messed up. That's what we did in the country. Yeah, I'm from Myrtle Beach, man. So there was a lot harder drugs around when I was back in high school, but yeah, I totally get it. Oh, it, it's, it's nuts to think about. And there were harder drugs too, but that is the way that all of us innocent kids got started in the beginning. And what this taught me very quickly, when I drank, everybody was like, man, Matt, that was so much fun. You want to hang out later? And I'd be like, you, you want to hang out with, okay. I never knew how to make friends. I never knew how to become comfortable with anyone in my life. And I don't know if I can necessarily attribute this just to the medication, but to my overall life, that's truly what happened. Yeah. And when I drank alcohol, people wanted to hang out with me. When I smoked weed, people wanted to hang out with me. But when I just wanted to hang out and, you know, go to a park, no one wanted to hang out with me. So I learned very quickly, let's just get drunk all the time. People yeah. love me. Why not? And I, I, I could say one difficult aid to all of this was uh, my family is from Belgium. And in Belgian culture, our drinking age is 14 over there. Uh -huh. We are very, drinking is appropriate. Nobody in my family, I can tell you, I come from a family of alcoholics. Every single person in my family drinks to fall asleep my entire life. And, wow. and drinks to have fun, drinks to wake up, drinks to do everything. But none of them know that they're an alcoholic. All of them just like drinking. Yeah, drinking no chance. Great. They're definitely well, not. Just ask them. Yeah, yeah, I'm not an alcoholic. So what if I drink every single day for the last 60 years? I'm not I can quit. I can quit. Yeah, of course. It's, I can quit. I just don't want it. Right. Can't who, who, who's ever said that before? <laughs> my, my mom, my brother, pretty much everyone. My whole family's alcohol. Well, two people so far haven't gone down the rabbit hole yet, but two, three of us are in sobriety right now. But it's crazy to think about, isn't it? And so far, I can tell you honestly, I'm the only one that's sober in my family. And Cycle, that part, they call that a cycle breaker, Matt. They call that a cycle breaker, brother. Oh, I'm a lot more than that, man. And I can't wait to tell you more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, please. You know, you know, this is, this was the start to my entire life going through high school. I just knew that I had to drink and be the crazy guy. Everybody likes that. Matt was willing to jump off a roof in order to make people laugh. Everybody knew that Matt was willing to steal from any store that you told him to because he wanted you to laugh. Yeah. And a lot of this attributed back to the ADHD brain that is always seeking stimulation. I loved making people laugh. I loved shocking people. I loved making people freak out. I liked making people angry at me. I liked fighting. I liked anything that brought me that little bit of stimulation. So I became that kid. You became the class clown. I became the class jerk Yeah, <laughs> to a certain degree. And that was the only way that I was allowed to have friends was if I was the biggest jerk in the, in the class, if I was to, to protect the women and beat the men, like become just this person that nobody necessarily wanted to like, but everybody liked to watch. Yeah. And no, I, yeah, I can relate. Yeah. No, I, 
I get it, man. Um, so before we go any further, what, what, because there are people who are going to listen to this who have not heard of what ADHD is. Can you just give us the, the Matt Rakelboom definition of, you know, ADHD and maybe of what the symptoms are? So if some people there are listening, they can kind of follow along. Absolutely. Uh, so ADHD is a neurodevelopmental disorder. Essentially, the simple way of putting it is the prefrontal cortex of the brain, which is something that controls your emotional regu- regulation, your ability, your impulsivity, your ability to transmit your neurotransmitters such as serotonin, dopamine, um, norepinephrine, things like this. It is actually smaller in the brain of an ADHD person than it is of the average human being. So we think about emotional recognition, we think about hyperactivity, impulsivity. These things are all a little bit less in our control than the average human. These things make it that when we have a brain that normally goes, hey, you shouldn't be doing that right now, you should be doing something else, Um, that part of our brain is the thing that is quieter. We don't hear that. We just think, ooh, squirrel, as the, the hilarious joke comes about. What a lot of people don't realize and the difficulty that I'd love to point out in every podcast I ever make is that attention deficit hyper disorder is actually a really awful name these days because people with with ADHD, we actually don't have an attention deficit. In fact, we not only have the ability to obtain but retain more information than the average human being. We do not have a hyperactivity issue that has been actually disproven and it's more of an impulsivity issue with a lot of stimulation. And the disorder piece is even up for grabs because disorders means that it can't be helped. And in reality, ADHD can be controlled, but it does require a certain amount of education and understanding of yourself to be able to move forward. So when we are all common, how common is ADHD? Right now, the misdiagnosis rate is actually higher than the diagnosis rate. So the commonality of it all is very difficult to actually tell. But what people are assuming the accurate numbers are is somewhere between 6 and 8% of the population, which is oh, tens wow. of millions of people across North America alone. Wow. Yeah. No, that's, well, uh, well said. Uh, I, I, I mean, I think I understand it a lot better, you know, but there, but you're so right, man. There's so many people who, you know, who take their kids and because of a teacher or because of the way that they're not acting like their siblings and they get put on that medication er- at an early age and they find out later on in life you know, I, I was on the wrong stuff, um, or, you know, I, I was misdiagnosed and, you know, I think that it could be just as damaging. as just letting somebody, you know, live their life who's suffering from a disorder, um, or, you know, as you say, something that can be helped with the right, you know, kind of formula. Um, Absolutely. so we're up to, we're up to high school now. So what, yeah. um, so, so you're still on medication in high school? Still on medication. And uh, to be honest, high school is a bit of a blur to me, which is the upsetting part of, again, as you pointed out, actually the traumatic pass. I got into a lot of a lot of trouble, whether it was with the law, with people in my school, just in general, people around my life. I, I was the kid that, you know, give them some acid, give them some MDMA. Let's go and get absolutely messed up. And let's make sure that Matt's there because he always does something dumb. And I became that kid. I was 150 pounds soaking wet, super skinny. You know, I never had money to eat, but I always had money to get messed up because I used the money that my mom gave me to eat to get messed up. Yeah. And there was so much difficulty around it all. But the thing that hit me the most and the thing that really affected me in my school time, nobody realized, but I was the loneliest kid anyone knew. And a big reason is both of my parents are entrepreneurs. Both of my parents worked seven days a week. They never had a lot of time for me. And I was the youngest of four children. My, my siblings are eight, 10 and 12 years older than I am. Oh, and wow. 
the the issue that I see now that I'm a little bit more educated on all of this, this was anger when I was younger, like extreme anger, is that my parents should have never had another kid, if I'm honest. Yeah. They 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 were too old. My my father was uh, 50 years old when he had me, like when I was born. And so I, I grew up with older parents that didn't have time to play ball with me, didn't have time to hang out, didn't have time to do anything. And our family dinners where my mom would make three pounds of spaghetti and leave it on the counter. And we would just, you know, scoop as needed. Yeah. My, uh, my siblings being as old as they were, everyone's like, you have siblings, you're not alone. And I go, yeah, except all of them moved out by the time I was 12 years old. Yeah, man. You know, all of them were in their twenties by the time I was 12 years old. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't necessarily have siblings. I had adult figures in my life that apparently we should love each other. And I, we never took time. We ne- we have never taken a family vacation together, never done really anything as a family at this point. And it just, it was an extreme difficulty to me because when I hear my siblings talk about their childhoods, my parents gave them rules and regulations. And I was a 12 year old that could come home at 2 a.m. and no one would notice. Yeah, they were done by that point. You yeah. got to learn from your siblings or not learn at all. Yeah, I was not only a hyperactive, impulsive kid, but also I had no rules, which meant if I get if I got in trouble, if I hurt anyone, my parents would be like, oh, you're such a problem child. And that's all I really got. So when they found out that medication could regulate me, great, crank it up, crank it up, crank it up, give him more. You know, let's just make sure that Matt just gets through life because that's truly how I felt growing up. And it led me to become an incredibly lonely child. And anybody that was willing to give me any attention for anything I would do. That became my life. I was the kid that loved hurting himself, hurting others, you know, making fun of others, making people feel lower than I am. I'm a very fast thinker and a fast talker. And yeah. definitely the wittiness came with that. And I, I was definitely that person that every teacher hated. And it, it was a difficult time for me. For yeah. sure. Yeah. As simple as I could put high school. Yeah. No, I, um, I, it sounds like, um, you know, you were just trying to figure it out, you know, with, uh, you know, with kind of this like, I, I talk about living my life with anxiety. I had a fishbowl. I was like navigating life through this fishbowl. Why, you know, why everybody else was kind of like clear headed and whatnot. So you can, you can know everything about me. Uh, you would understand if you just look back through the lens of anxiety, it's pretty much everything that I did. So, um, is that kind of how you were with your ADHD or, um, or were you, were you medicated up to the point where you were just, you know, in your own world? You know, I, I think that is actually the most accurate way that I could put it is I was always in my own world. It didn't yeah. matter what anyone said to me. It didn't matter what anyone advised me to do. A teacher could tell me, all you got to do is do this and you'll pass the class. And I'll be like, no. Yeah. And something chemical, you know, um, something chemical that was off. You know, not only that, truthfully, but what, what we know about stimulation in the brain today is that what you are putting in your brain matters, how you're stimulating yourself matters. And I was a kid, truthfully, if we talk about addiction, by the time that I was in high school, I had a horrendous masturbation addiction. I had horrendous gaming addictions where like, I would go home, I would skip classes just to go home and play more games. And I would yeah. play eight, nine, 10 hours a day on top of going to school. A lot of the times I just wouldn't sleep all night. And then I'd sleep while I was at school. Yeah. I, I had addiction. Again, I, I found my stimulation through anger, through physical exertion in some way, shape or form. And because again, I didn't really have a lot of family support growing up. I didn't really have any sports that I was playing. I didn't have sports. I didn't have martial arts. I didn't have even friends to Josh around with to a certain degree. Um, all I had was the things that I knew and I found my own coping mechanisms as young as 12 years old. And the only thing that fed into this was my medication. Mm. 
the the issues with this is actually if we can just go past high school now. Yeah. Um, when I got away from the regulation, this is something I love to talk to people about. High school, nobody realizes is amazing for people with ADHD. So is normal school because they tell you when to wake up, when to eat lunch, um, when to learn, when to see your friends, when to go home. Schedule is so un unbelievably important. And I, I, I have famously used the quote, um, it's better to obey than to create. And yeah. what people don't understand about that quote with the ADHD brain is that if we have to obey a schedule, if you tell me to wake up, go somewhere, see friends, eat, learn, I will do those things. But if you tell me, hey, I need you to wake up and at some point you need to eat, see your friends and learn something. That is when my brain will go, well, when should I do that? Should I do the creativity thing first? Should I go and see some friends? What if I what if I want to learn first? Because then if I see my friends, maybe I don't want to learn. But then once again, what if I want to see my friends? And then I'm like, oh my God, what do I want to do next? And wow. you know that your brain starts going in these crazy directions. Um, and it becomes very, very difficult to the point where when I got out of high school, this is when my actual issues in life truly started. Oh, I didn't I see. I, I didn't realize. But when I got out of high school and everything was my responsibility, I had to pick what job I wanted. I had, and again, my family, I, they were not supportive of me going to college or university. According to my family, I'll be honest because this is the podcast to be, my parents told me I'd fail anytime that I ever went to college or university. So there was no point in trying. True, brutal. I, was, uh, I never got good grades. I never, I, I was never good in class. So they said, you're, you're born. I, I was not only told this, but my family, but my, pa uh, my, oh, my parents, my friends, anyone in my life told me you might as well just go join a trade and be one of those guys that just works and drinks. That's all you get to do. So I took their advice and I decided to become a carpenter out of school. Uh, I ended up doing that, which I uh, eventually developed. I started smoking like crazy. I started smoking about a pack and a half of cigarettes every single day. I started drinking every single night because what else are you going to do after a hard day's work, right? You got to crack a cold one and then just go and get messed up until work the next day. During that time, I started drinking and smoking and drinking and smoking to the point where I needed to make up for it somehow with all this all this discomfort I was feeling from being hungover and sunburnt and everything all the time. Mm. So I started eating on top of it all. And I went from 150 pounds and to about 260. Oh, wow. From high school till then, I gained about 110 pounds. Oh, and man. now all of a sudden on top of drinking and smoking, I was now quite overweight for someone my height and everything. Um, and that is when I started, you know, looking for something more because now I couldn't stand to look at myself in the mirror. Yeah. Now all of a sudden I couldn't stand anything. And where you said at the start of this call, you know, people say that I'm cute. People, I, people really do actively hit on me in my comment section and stuff like that. It is a wonderful feeling, but you know, what is the worst and hardest part is that I really went through that ugly duckling phase of, I really hated my appearance for yeah. most of my life. And when I see stuff like that, Man, I can tell you, I actually really get distracted by it because I went, what, what do you mean you think I'm cute? There's a certain part of me deep down that goes, I don't believe you and you're out to hurt me. And yeah, what do, you, what, do you, what do you want? What is it? Yeah. Are, are you trying to you know, get attention by saying these things yeah. to me? Yeah. Anybody that ever hit on me, I found out that like my friends would put them up to it and that yeah. they'd you know, like, they make fun of me in public somehow, some way. I've had girls ask me out. And then, you know, giggle to themselves and laugh and be like, that was so gross. Oh, my God. I, I remember all of those feelings. And, Brutal, man. you know, looking in the mirror every single day, I had terrible acne. I, I had you, you can look at this all on my Instagram. I was a very different looking person. I had a circle for a face. And I'm sorry to anybody that gets to, uh, uncomfortable. This is the way that I describe myself. It is not a hatred towards any other kind of person. Um, but I, you know, I'd look at myself and I'd hate myself for the fat that I grew. I'd hate myself for how terrible my face looked for how terrible everything is. But on top of it all, I'm a man. 
And what is a part of man culture? If you care about your appearance, if you care about your hygiene, if you care about anything, you're you're a you're a woman, according to especially work in labor like that, you know. Dude, I'm surrounded by 50-year-old men that, oh, women are the worst, and oh, let's just go get drunk every single night, and all these terrible things that they're now putting into my head. And so many other 20-year-olds that I met over that time, I was a carpenter, I was in landscape architecture, I was an arborist for a while, I went through the trades, man. I I went through the trades, and I loved it. Truthfully, I loved it. But the thing that really messed me up was the the inspiring culture that was around it. They inspired me to be that toxic, terrible man. And, you know, like I had a unibrow and I, I I always hated myself for it, but never could I shave it or get it waxed because that's just not manly. And I had to smell. I could never smell nice. I had to, you know, you don't like my axe. What do you mean? Yeah, <laughs> that's that's always what had to happen during that amount of time. And I just grew more and more and more hateful. And the worst thing, the absolute worst thing was this night where my friends came up to me and they went, dude, do you want to try MDMA with us? And. And I went, sure, I don't care what it is. I'm down to do anything with my friends. I just want to feel different. And the worst thing ever was that night to this day, I will describe it as the best night of my life. Not, not only did I have the uncontrollable happiness that I, first of all, had not really felt up until that point in my life. Um, but also I was surrounded by a bunch of friends and we had some bromance, man. I we, bet. I, I had moments where we like group hugged like 10 men and we were like, I love you. This is amazing. Guys, I, I love you all so much. I would I would be nowhere without you. And because of that, we had the best time of our entire lives. And you know what that told me? Why the hell would I ever be sober? Yeah, ever why wouldn't I take this every day? And that night, I'll never forget, was the night that sparked this craving for happiness in myself. And what's interesting, the way that I look at it now, I really realized it was happiness. It was not drugs. It was not craving any other feeling. I just wanted to be happy, damn it. That's yeah. all I wanted in life. And I knew that if I took this magical pill that some dude made in his basement, then I became happy. Yeah. And then after that, I got introduced into ecstasy and acid and all of this kind of stuff that just, it only made things more fun. You ever gone to a festival on acid? It's the best. First of all, <laughs> that's exactly that's exactly where I was when I tried MDMA. We or we went to Bonnaroo. I think it was MDMA. You never know what the guy's selling you. No, yeah. No. And I so that like you, my experience with these drugs that release all sorts of do- dopamine and norepinephrine. I don't know what it is, but they release it all at once. Boom. Mm-hmm. And for somebody like me who lived with an anxiety, it was like a uh, slot machine. Do-do-do-do. That's what my thoughts were like. All, they're all negative, irrational thoughts. And they would stop on one and it would just be grow and grow and grow. And then I would pull the wheel and it would go. And so when I took the, we, they called it Molly. When they, when, when somebody gave me Molly for the first time, I felt just like you, man. I was like, man, is this how other people feel? Is this what, is this how other, is this why other people are so happy and I'm so angry all the time? Yeah. And, uh, and then I'll, I'll let you finish your story. But for me, it was the next day. The crash that, you know, the drive back to Myrtle Beach from Bonnaroo in Tennessee, where my brain wasn't producing any more of this happy stuff. And Mm -hmm. so I went through the whole day. I think it was two or three days where I was in bad shape. And that's the only thing that saved me from doing it because I couldn't get my hands on it every day to stop the bad feeling. So it was the it was the hangover from it that kept me, you know, from being a full blown addict, because when you hear somebody who's 
struggling or, you know, kind of dealing with their own stuff say, wow, this feels great. You know that there's a chance that that person is going to become addicted. So yeah, the net. So we always just did it at festivals. That was my rule. And so I went from Bonnaroo and then we went to Firefly and that's why I tried to ask the first time. Now we're caught up. You're up. Damn. (laughs) And it's, it's so real. And what you just said, actually, this is the, this is the perfect setup. It's like, you knew that this was coming. Um, it's hard to afford it and get it all the time. Now, for me, that night, um, that actually started what was what I didn't realize at the time. I went six years of not being sober for even an hour. Oh, wow. If, if I woke up, I needed a shot of whiskey or I wouldn't even brush my teeth. And then I had to get messed up on something over that time from about, I, I believe it was either late 19 or 20 years old until I was around 25, 26 years old. I can't remember a single hour, a single event, a single anything where I, it, it, it doesn't just seem like a flashback to me because I barely remember it. Wow. But I was dating somebody at the time who her dad, and I can only give so much detail into this, but her dad was a drug kingpin. Oh, geez. And don't, the worst, don't bring me into this. The yeah, worst. I don't want this guy coming after me. <laughs> yeah. And there, uh, the, the issue was that he liked me a lot. And if oh, I wanted, wow. and if I made his daughter very happy and that meant that he'll give us whatever we need. You know, if I, if we didn't have money for food one day, he bought us food. If we didn't have money for drugs, he got us drugs. He gave us anything that we needed. And this sparked an unbelievable, you know, I, I became an entitled 20 year old. I'm like, you have to bow down to me because I can get whatever I want. Yeah. And really it it had nothing to do with me, but of course my naive self back then, I didn't know any better. And this started this journey of me being with this woman and not, it's not even just being with her, but I found my happiness, man. I was happy every single day. Why the hell would I not do it? I wake up and I'm like, Ooh, I feel like shit. Let's drink the happy juice. You know, Oh, I feel terrible. Let's take a happy pill. Why not? It even gave me the ability to get off ADHD medication eventually, which way great. Um, but you know, this is where the the toxic part of my journey really hit is during that time, not only did I have drugs available to me, they were free. So why wouldn't yeah. I? And and, and, my- and you're unhappy and you're sick, right? And like, I mean, that's the thing. Like people don't do drugs. This guy, if you guys are listening, this guy's not telling you he was doing drugs because he wanted to party and like, you know hook up with girls and all that this dude was doing drugs because the storm in his brain would exit as long as that stuff was running through his his blood yep. and and that is what that's what addiction is man it's people who are in pain and then all of a sudden they take this and they're not in pain and then it's people who have never been in such bad pain such physical pain such loneliness that don't understand like why somebody would for six years because you were hurting, you know, and that's an important, that's an important uh, part of this thing. Cause I don't want people to think, Oh, you know, this guy, this guy, I took this, these drugs because uh, you say happiness, but I, as my therapist says, it's the absence of pain that it created. You know what I mean? So, so what happened with the kingpin? I mean, I'm <laughs> so, so, yeah. I'll tell you, during this time, um, even though I had things given to me, it was never good enough. So I had to lie and cheat and steal, not never on my partner or anything. I'm very against that, but that's a whole other conversation. Um, but like, I, I did terrible things to my parents. I, I hated them. They never gave me drugs. 
they they never gave me anything that like helped my life at all. They just they neglected me and threw a therapist at me every so often that I I never got along with. I never got along with one therapist at this point. Oh my god, it was killing me. So yeah. I hated my family, and every so often I'd just go to their house and I start stealing shit. To the yep. I'm sorry, I, I shouldn't swear. Um, what do you do? This is literally a a real authentic recovery podcast. <laughs> if you go to treatment, your therapist is going to swear at you. If you go where I went, All go right, ahead, well, brother. You, well, I don't. I want you to just feel open and honest and let it flow, man. This is a this is a killer story that is is common, but it's also you know incredible. Well. Then hold on to your fucking hats, because I yeah. got, I got something to tell you. I hated my family, and my family hated me. So we completely cut all ties. I didn't like any of my friends anymore because a lot of them actually were doing better than I was. Yeah. Um. So I cut all ties with them, and it was just me and my girl and our drugs. And why not? It was fantastic, and she was in the exact same boat as I was. Every second, we'd do it together. Oh, that was man. an activity that got me. You know, it, it got me intimacy. It got me excitement. It got me developing the life I always wanted with the girl of my dreams and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And the weight's coming off because you ain't eating. Yeah. <laughs> no, actually, no. I, I kept eating the whole time. I oh, it, really? it was a part of it all, man. I had a McDonald's addiction. That was, that was the, one of the biggest addictions on top of it all. Double Big Mac, large fry, large Coke, two times a day, every day. Yeah, man. So 40, God. 50 bucks a day in food. And I made about a quarter of what I make today. And it's, uh, I don't know how the heck I managed to afford it all. But again, I would steal things. I would do Survivor, things. I, man. I, I was the kind of person who, you know, if I needed something, you know, I, w- I was the productive drug addict. I was the guy that would go door to door and say, hey, I noticed some weeds in your garden. Can I pull them all out for 50 bucks? And, you know, I, I did what was needed. I always did. Yeah. Um, but the issue was that, I was never happy without pills and it bothered me. And to be honest, the biggest thing out of everything, I, I was perfectly fine with the drugs, the cigarettes, the alcohol, the masturbation issues, the, the everything. The one thing I didn't like was the, was the weight. I just, I never liked being a bigger person. It bothered me and made me so uncomfortable, but I had no idea how to solve it. And I yeah. kept working for diets and exercises and did all of these things. And my partner at the time, who was also, you know, again, being a part of this journey with me, she would always shame it. She'd be like, why, why are you working out right now? That's gay. That was always the word that she would use. She's like, that's super gay that you want to work out. And why would you want to lose weight? Like that's such a waste of time. We could be playing video games. We could be doing other things. And I didn't want to do that. Yeah. Um, So finally, I remember there was this one day I could tell you where I was, what I was wearing, everything. Everyone remembers those key turnaround moments in their lives. And I saw a podcast when podcasts were first introduced on Spotify. I think they were like a month into launching their their podcast program. And there was one that said diet and ADHD. And it was a random podcast. I can't tell you what it was, but it said diet and ADHD. And at the time, again, small town boy, I didn't know anyone with ADHD. I didn't know that other people had ADHD. There was yeah. no content on the internet. There was nothing else but books on ADHD. So I was like, whatever, I'm, I'm a science experiment. But yeah. no one else has it but me. And all of a sudden there's a podcast on there. And to this day, actually, because of the amazing feats that I've made in this space, I've actually met this man, oh, really? a man named Peter Shankman. And he is the owner of a company called Faster Than Normal, unbelievable ADHD company, unbelievable ADHD podcast. And he was actually just guest featuring on someone's podcast. And oh, wow. he talked about his childhood and how he was a hyperactive kid that got into alcohol really early and, you know, totally screwed up in school and had tough times with his parents. And he talked about how he got out of it. And I remember I 
bald. I was in the middle. I, I was landscaping at the time and I was just cutting someone's grass. And I remember I had to stop the lawnmower, turn it off, and I had to just cry. And I was like, what do you mean I'm not alone? It's relief, and man. I, I need to figure out what this is. So I ended up reaching out to Peter and I sent him this huge long paragraph of like, I'm a drug addict. I am, you know, I, I'm, I'm fat as hell. I hate myself. And you're the first person who ever told me that's okay and that I can change it. And he sent me back, very generic, fam- famous guy sent me back yeah. a generic email saying, hey, hope the best for you. Yeah. And I went, Peter Shankman hopes the best for me. I got to do something. You know, I, I took that so seriously. Well, I personally good. hate answering people with just a single sentence. I need to give them that same respect in return. But that really hit me. I was like a guy that I am just just found out about, but I look up to him. He told me I can do this, so I'm going to do it. Yeah. And I started learning about the brain. I still kept doing drugs. I still kept doing everything, but I started just learning about habits. I started learning about why you should stretch before going to sleep, why you should drink a certain amount of water. And this led me to my, my game-changing day that changed everything, um, which was a day where me and my, my partner at the time, we were about to get messed up one more time. And she said, okay, let's get started. And I said, hold on. Peter Shankman says that I should do 10 minutes of stretching before I, you know, do anything uh, stimulation inducing, which is a very true point. If you've ever heard the um, the halt method of hungry, angry, lonely, tired, you should take care of those four feelings if you feel any of them before you ever stimulate yourself with something negative for yourself. Okay. Wonderful. What are the four four things? It's called halt. H-A-L-T, which is hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. Because when you do stimulating activities that are that are negative for us, drug use, cigarettes, anything like that, it can mute those. It doesn't make them go away, but it can mute them Ah, bothering your brain. So I went, I need to stretch first before I do drugs. And Johnny, the the thing that changed my life, dude, I fell asleep. I was sober and I fell asleep for the first time. First time in six years, I passed out and I woke up and she was still awake and twitching and, you know, doing whatever we were doing at the time. And I remember I had never seen life through this scope before. We had dishes with mold all over them, all over, all over our bedroom. We had, there was not a, not an actual carpet on the floor. It was all clothing and crap and toys and all kinds of stuff. And I walked into the bathroom. Oh my God. I'm like reliving this as I'm telling you this. Um, I walked into the bathroom and I looked in the mirror and I didn't actually know how much I hated the way I looked. I didn't yeah. realize I barely had skin left. It was all picked and uh, and destroyed and full of acne and terrible looking. My hair looked awful. My everything looked awful. And I, I looked around and I went, I don't like any of this and I yeah. need to change it now. And that day I broke up with her. We had a house together. I left the house I left absolutely everything. Wow. I was only, I, I, I told her because actually I supported the both of us. That was one reason why her dad liked us. I just let her not work. She was a stay at home girlfriend. What a great thing, right? I'm, I'm, I was a smart guy in his twenties, apparently. <laughs> um, and, uh, I left her everything I owned except for two things, which was a Bluetooth speaker and my dog. Oh, and the video I said, game stayed, huh? Video games all stayed, all the coll- the thousands of dollars of collectibles that I had long before dating her. I left her those, the TVs, the furniture, the everything. Breaking free, man. New start. I, I just I just had to leave and I didn't care what I owned, but I knew I wanted my dog and I knew I wanted a blue sea speaker because mu- we got to have music or life's just not worth living, according That's to true. Frederick Nietzsche. And I, I, <laughs> yeah. I love, I love, I love that. Nietzsche quote, huh? Yeah, all right. Yeah, all right. <laughs> 
<laughs> I use them smarticle particles every so often, man. Yeah, um, man. So anyways, I left. And the thing is, I didn't have a relationship with my family. I didn't have any friends left. So yeah. I had to go and live in my vehicle. Mm-hmm. And I, I left a, a house with someone that I was planning to marry one day. I, I, I left a life that I had built over years to become homeless and to become sober. And I did, uh, you, you know, being homeless, I, I still am millennial. So one thing I did keep with my, which was my cell phone. Yeah. And what I decided to do, I thought I was very smart for this. And to this day, I'm like, good job, Matt. That is, this is a good idea. I went and got a, uh, a gym membership at an anytime yeah. fitness, which is open 24 seven. And, shower. No, and it, I, I got a shower. I got a TV. If I ever just wanted to walk on the treadmill and I just got a place to go. If I just wanted to leave the car for a little bit. My dog and I lived on loaves of bread and nothing but for a little while. And uh, I went through the withdrawals, which, by the way, to anybody listening, I don't recommend what I'm about to say. Mm. But I went through, I quit full on ADHD medication. I quit acid, MDMA, ecstasy on almost a daily basis. I, I quit cigarettes completely. Holy cow. And I quit drinking all at once because I didn't have anything left. I didn't have a father-in-law to support me anymore. I, I didn't have any money. I didn't have anywhere to go. I, I had no choice but to quit it all. And I went through the worst time of my entire life to the point where I can only tell you what I think happened. In a car. In a car. Jeez. Twitching and sweating and not being able to do anything. And I remember there was one day, I think it was on like day three or something like that, I remember going, I need to find out why the hell this is happening. I feel beyond worse than I've ever felt in my entire life. So I Googled it and I said, why am I sweating such freezing cold sweat right now? And I came to the ultimate realization. There was an answer, Johnny. There was a reason why my my sweat was ice cold. There was a reason why I couldn't stop twitching. There was a reason why I uncontrollably would start crying And it developed what I didn't realize at the time, which how in the hell could you ever realize this? This developed my interest in human behavior and neurobiology as to how it affects our body and mind. And I just, I I found my coping mechanism for life. I found out that there's an answer to literally every question that you've ever asked because science is far enough ahead. And obviously I don't mean the answers of the universe, but I mean, why the hell am I sweating? Why am I twitching? All of these kind of things. And I just started doing it for fun i'd be like oh man my left leg hurts right now and i've been sitting for three hours why does my left leg hurt after three hours you know i just i started googling and reading research papers and listening to podcasts and doing anything that i could to figure things out and i didn't realize at the time but i was getting pretty smart you know being sober matt actually could remember things sober matt actually had the ability to move forward and do certain things and it got me to the point where I started developing nicer coping me- mechanisms to the point where I was able to save up to get my first apartment. Me and my dog, we, we didn't have a mattress. We didn't have anything. I slept on my dog for the first week. I still have, still have this dog. She, she's outside of my door right now. I love her with all my heart. That's great, and man. No one will ever know that story to the full detail. But man, I remember crying my eyes out with that dog every single night for the first couple of years. And I, I had a terrible, terrible time repercussions that happened to me because of all of this. I can tell you that my acid flashbacks are insane and very powerful. Um, That part's really tough. I developed very rough asthma from quitting a pack and a half of cigarettes a day to nothing. Uh, My my lungs went into shock. And um, and now to this day, I have to take steroids four times a day. I have emergency puffers on me at all times. Damn. And the thing that I started realizing, though, is that 
you're allowed to change your life. Because as I saved up, eventually I got a bed. Eventually I got another TV. I even got a Netflix subscription after a little while, Johnny. I was able to afford eight moving bucks up. extra. And hell yeah, I was moving up. I went from Mr. Noodles to the more premium brands. Like I, 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 I started realizing that life is possible. And I started wondering how much further I could take this. And I started just reading and researching. And I found out how much of this correlated with my ADHD. And I thought it was very neat. And this is actually when I started, um, the, the biggest thing that started changing my life was I started running. I couldn't afford to actually go out and do anything. Even though I had a gym membership, I was too nervous to go in there. I just, yeah. I, I used that gym membership just for the shower and stuff like that. I, I didn't actually want to go and have anyone look at me because I looked terrible. I felt terrible. So I started running. And much as the David Goggins story, if, you, if anyone listening has ever heard of it, um, Goggins ran his first quarter mile and then balled his eyes out, went home and drank a milkshake. And for me, because of my my terrible asthma that I had and, the, you know, the terrible feelings that I felt, I think I ran for about two minutes and then just started bawling my eyes out. Mm -hmm. But then the next day I ran for three minutes and four minutes. And then all of a sudden I started feeling a little bit better. And I ended up getting a new girlfriend that was very supportive and she just happened to be happily sober. She loved life. And that was very helpful to me. Funny how and, it works out. Yeah. And we just, we, we cooked together and we did things together and without realizing it, without actually having a goal in mind, I lost my first 50 pounds from just becoming sober and starting to learn more about myself and being comfortable on a daily basis. I lost 50 pounds, Johnny. And mm -hmm. the biggest thing that that taught me was that I should have never been that big to begin with. I should have never been that unhealthy to begin with. And I, I stopped eating for coping. I stopped needing other things. And the thing that blows my mind to anybody listening that really relates to the idea that I found my happiness with drugs, I found happiness without drugs. Yeah. I found out that if I go for a run and I eat really good food and I snuggle my dog at night and I watch a good movie with a cute girl under my arm, I, I didn't need anything else. And this developed a love for sobriety, a love for exercise, a love for life in general. Yeah. And this pushed me into just wanting to start changing things. And little backstory that I forgot to mention, um, I hired a personal trainer like years before this. And I went into there at absolutely hungover as hell or still really high yeah. to, to work out because I wanted to lose weight and it never happened. And I spent like $1,400 on a guy that I never took seriously. <laughs> um, but he ended up finding out that I, I lost 50 pounds and he sent me a message that goes, dude, let's hang out. I, awesome. I, I'm curious about you. And he ended up to this day, he's a great friend of mine. And we talked about the idea of changing our lives. And I found out that he had quite a similar story. This dude is shredded. Okay. He, he competed in the Arnold Schwarzenegger games. Guy looked like a Roman God. Like he, yeah. he's phenomenal looking. And he used to be like a stupid frat boy in college and all this kind of stuff. And he was like, how can we change this? How can we get people's attention with this? Cause at this point I'm starting to become who I am today. And I wanted to help people. I wanted people to know that they could become sober if they wanted to. And I wanted to use myself as an example. And he went, why don't we do something to get people's attention? What can we do? And I went, I don't know. Like, I'll do anything. I don't care. And he went, how about we run a marathon? And I went, sure. What's that? <laughs> I had no idea what a marathon was. And then I looked it up and I found out it was 42 kilometers or 26 miles. 26.1. Yes. 26.1. And I went, Oh, damn. And we looked it up and it was in 10 weeks, the one that we wanted to go to. So two and a half months. And he went, yeah, dude, are you down? And I went, you know what? Yeah. Yeah, I'm down. 
And he, as a personal trainer, developed the most intense, ridiculous running plan ever to get me marathon ready for two and a half months from then. And it's better to obey than to create, as I said earlier. I started documenting these. These videos are actually still on the internet of my first ever 5K run, not the 42K run, the 5K yeah. run. And I'm drenched in sweat, head to toe. And like, I'm I'm not good in front of a camera. I'm not a good talker. I'm just like, what's up, everybody? <laughs> I'm I'm so tired. I don't know how I'm going to do it. Like, it's, it's hilarious to look back on now. What I didn't know was that was the stepping stone to me becoming who I am today. Yeah. And not only did we start to get people's attention, we started getting sponsors. I had people cooking food wow. for me. I started having water being provided for me from a local distillery. I started awesome. having all of these interesting things. My clothing was paid for. And we started having people just donating money to us for like just to just for us to do this. And not only did I go from never running or running a, a race in my life, um, but I ended up completing the marathon in four hours and 31 minutes. Damn, that's great, man. I I, I ran I, I ran at a pace of six minutes and twenty seconds per kilometer Holy for the entire God. race, and I ended up losing another thirty pounds on that. So I, I had lost eighty pounds at this point. I looked fantastic. I felt fantastic, and we ended up starting a charity called the It's Fun to Try Hard Movement, and we wanted nice. to teach people that it was fun to try hard. We wanted yeah. to be real blunt with it, and we actually created diet plans, nutrition like nutrition plans, workout plans for anyone for free. Anytime, provided that they wanted to try hard with it. There you go. And we led my example, did everything that we could. We held competitions and did all this kind of crazy stuff. And it changed my life, man. It was the start to a, it was the start to what I now consider a wonderful life. And I'm so proud of that. So what's the guy's name again? (laughs) His name was Dylan Dempster. No, the the guy guy who you heard in the podcast. Oh, that was Peter Shankman. So now you're Peter Shankman to a I, whole bunch of other mats out there. Oh, you know, make me cry. Don't you say that one. Oh, what do you here. mean? I mean, that's why you do these podcasts. You know, that's why you do your content, you know, and it's not like Peter Shankman knew how much he impacted you. Did he? Absolutely not. This guy, this guy sent you one email and you, well, now you met him and you tell him everything, but. You know, the reality of the situation is that's why we do what we do, right? Because the Peter Shankmans out there are, they're no different than the people listening to this podcast. All you have to do is talk about your life and people will find similarities and people will find hope in those similarities. Because guess what? Like Matt said, like I say, people aren't always there to tell you, hey, Johnny, it's anxiety, bro. You're fine. You're not dying. Don't go to the hospital. I went to the hospital. I mean, 15 times, six grand a pop to be told it's just anxiety, but they didn't say it was just anxiety. They just gave me something and then sent me on my way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it wasn't until I met people in my treatment facility who were like, wait a minute. So do you have hypervigilance? Do you like stand in the middle of your living room with a gun waiting on somebody to come through the door? And I'm like, yeah, but I don't talk about that. And they're like, dude, we, we all have with hypervigilance, you know, it gets you right. And I mean, dude, just like you, I started crying just like anybody else who finds out that they're not alone you get really impacted and it's very emotional and that's why you're a part of white flag that's why we have it out there is to simplify the process to find your own peter shankman or whatever the guy's name yeah, is yeah, you got it. to find your matt Rakelboom. and you know uh and we are uh, and we are just getting started because 
the people who don't know to look up their symptoms like you did to make themselves feel better. They are going to find out through a podcast like this to start their journey. They're going to start, they're going to find out through a friend who downloads white flag or somebody who goes to your Instagram and sees that the stuff that you think nobody else is going through, or maybe you think everybody else is going through and you're just like the weak one. It's not accurate. Suffering and individuals who go through suffering, uh, they, they, take it upon themselves to, to, to beat themselves up and say, you're weak. These people are, that guy's got a way worse life than that guy's got a way worse life than me. And in reality, you are dealing with a brain issue that is, that is individual to you and customized to you. But on a broader scale, a lot of people are going through it. Like you 10% ADHD for me, you know, uh, it's, it's, with anxiety, people think it's closer to 25% of the population now um, deals with anxiety. And, uh, you know, so I wanted to point that out that Pete, that you are the guy who, I mean, you got no idea who's, who's mowing the grass listening to you, man. So it's, it's a great story. It's, it's a huge Testament. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I love it, man. And I know that you're actually going to do some speaking for white flag guys. So for those of y'all who follow us on our social media, stay close, because Matt, myself, Nate Boyer, and a couple other individuals, um, we're going to start, you know, speaking at at white flag panels, uh, white flag, you know, we call them parties, but really it's just a way, you know, for us to to have a physical community on top of everything else. So, uh, man, I, I'm sorry, sorry I cut in the middle there, but I wanted you to realize, you know, how significant it is uh, to the people who are on a lawnmower right now, hearing your story, man. You know, man you as the creator of white flag, you know, these things. And there, there's a privilege of knowing that people don't understand. And I think that yeah. this is the most important thing. I have a privilege of knowing that if I drink some water, my head gets a little bit less cloudy. I have a privilege of knowing that when I go out there and physically exert myself, I don't need to come home and get messed up. I have the privilege of knowing that when I'm sad, I can do something about it to be happy. And for a massive part of my life, the biggest part of my story that I try and tell people is most of my life, I didn't know that I was allowed to be happy. I didn't yeah. know that I was allowed to talk to anyone. And the reason being is I didn't talk to anyone. I wish I could, but my family was so judgmental. My friends were so judgmental. How was I supposed to tell someone that I'm super lonely? Because whenever I did, they'd say, you have two parents that are still together and three siblings. You're not lonely. You're just, yeah. you're, you're just being selfish. You're being a spoiled kid. Oh my God, I got told that all the time. And all I wanted was someone just to friggin' hear me, man. And when I got approached, Brave Dave is the man that approached me and said, there's a company called White Flag and you need to hear this. And when he, when he told me all about it, all I could picture were those times when I was bawling my eyes out in my car with absolutely no one. All I was thinking about was those times when, you know, I, I wanted to be sober, but everybody told me don't because you're, you're way cooler when you're not. Mm. When I think about those times when I had no friends, when I had no family, and so many other things that I haven't even told you in this podcast, man, there, there have been infinite situations where if I could have trusted a stranger and told them I'm depressed and someone reaches out to me and goes, I heard you were depressed. Yeah. That right there is inspiring. Even if they never say another word to me, if someone's like, I heard you're depressed. Hi. Yeah. Someone's that, like, or somebody's like, you okay. For me, like when, when people asked me if I was okay, when I left treatment was, a, I mean, I was civil rights lawyer. I was on news. I was on. I was on the Today Show when I 
whenever I came out of treatment was the very first time people started saying, are you doing okay? Yeah. For, for real. And it was like every single time it would just send like this, like weird shock through my body. And I'm like, I, I need more of that. I need a community. You know, that's what you're talking about. Whether it's your family, you know, like, like you, man, my family's not really my community. I got one brother that I, that I'm still close with. Um, and you know, I don't have any grandparents, aunts, uncles. I've never met most of my cousins. You know, I got a very small community and you know, that's what sobriety is and recovery is, is it's the promotion of connection and community. And that's where you find your way out, you know? And, uh, for me, that's when I, when I got out of the hole, I got out of the hole climbing off other people's backs. And then I threw a ladder back down the hole, which is white flag you know, for other people to be able to, you know, climb out on their own. But, you know, man, I, uh, your story is like so similar to, um, I mean, I'll be honest with you, your story is way more similar and relatable than mine, even, you know, being a lawyer and then witness to suicide and all that. But your story is what a normal quote unquote teenager who's, you know, going through issues goes through, you know, they find, they find, video games. My brother found video games, you know, they, they gain weight and then they look at themselves and they hate themselves. And it's just this cycle that Mm -hmm. you just keep going through. And, you know, and it's, it's another thing. I know we've talked about weight a lot on here and looks, but people should know, you know, from a little bit from my story, my, my mom and dad, they knew when my mom was drinking and my dad was doing his thing, uh, negative things, they would constantly go, your chin is, it's too big. And my mom would be like, your brace. My mom literally said I was 14 and she was like, we wasted $3,000 on your braces because your jaw, because your jawline didn't come in. I didn't even know what the hell a jawline was. So guess who's got a freaking beard now (laughs) because of the jawline. And the only time I've shaved it in the last 15 years was in treatment because my therapist figured it out. And she was like, you need to take it off and be proud of the way. You, and I still, I still have body image issues and people look at me. I mean, dude, I was in magazines and stuff like for my physique. And, you know, it was, it was my way of coping. And, you know, if I could get just skin and bones, a little bit of muscle on me, you know, maybe it won't hurt us. Maybe the thought, the, the remembering every time I look in a mirror, like maybe that will go away. And it, you know what, dude, it never did. It never went away for me. Even when I was 165 pounds in magazines and then I get up to 220 and I'm like, I still see myself the same way, you know? And that's when I realized that I had body image issues and, you know, shame issues. So, you know, I'm, I'm really glad that you brought it up. It's, it's not something we've talked about a lot on this podcast yet, um, but a lot of people can relate, man. You, you know, dude, one, one of the best things as a man, I, I, I could say that as a man, th- this becomes difficult because, again, we, we are surrounded a lot more by that toxically masculine culture that we need to be manly men and we need to do all these kind of things. The, the thing that changed my life around more than anything else, and I love giving credit to this because it seriously deserves it. Um, I used to watch Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. Yeah, I mean everybody's watched that. Even even no, hardcore Southern people. Come on. No, no. So many people haven't watched it because it's a bunch of gay men that are talking about things. So the amount of straight men that are like, oh, I'll never see that. And I remember my my girlfriend at the time, uh, when I first saw my first episode, she's like, Let's just watch it. And I went, Yeah, whatever, let's watch, you know, yeah. so people do whatever. Um, and, and I remember watching it and there was a guy that just happened to look like me, Johnny, the, yeah. the guy, he looked like crap. His hair looked terrible. He had terrible, like old clothing, all this stuff. 
And then, you know, I remember the hairstylist comes in. He goes, "How? what kind of hair product do you use? And he goes, <laughs> none. And he goes, you realize you're a man, right? You need a thumb of clay and then you stick it in your hair and you look great. Why are you not doing that? And I went, yeah, you do. And then it's yeah. like, you know, you know what a button up shirt does for you? And no, what? And I just I kept listening. And at the end of it, this man looked so handsome. Yeah. And I remember like I didn't actually tell my girlfriend this at the time, but I went, I, I need to go shopping. I, I need to go look yeah. for some things. And now to this day, I promote this, especially when I do coaching specifically with groups of men and stuff like that. I'm like, literally take some stuff. Like, look at my hair right now. This is not, this is not prim and proper, but this is something where I just put some stuff in my hair. I go like this. And now all of a sudden I'm, I'm people call me handsome online. Yeah. I, I, I go to a place once every two months and I get a bunch of giggling women to, to wax my eyebrows for me. And they think it's hilarious because <laughs> my eyebrows get pretty bad. And I brush my teeth constantly because I want white teeth. And, you know, by doing these little things, I put a thumb of clay in my hair. I get my eyebrows waxed every so often. I get a regular haircut. And all of a sudden, people started giving me compliments. Hey, you look great. I do? What do you mean? Yeah. And no one's ever told me that in my life. To this day, I, God forbid, I'm a single man right now. And if I go out on a date and they're like, wow, you're handsome. Like, I'm hers. And that's yeah. the worst thing, man. I have like the the low the low bar that I have for myself. When somebody gives me a compliment, I'm like, I love you with all my heart. Let's get married. Let's have kids. Let's do everything because you're obviously the one for me because no one tells me that. Well, I, you're not that special, man, because words yeah. of affirmation are that's that's the way to my heart, you know, and it's because I grew up with people in my house. Uh, I would say everybody but my youngest brother um, were constantly telling me that, you know, uh, you, you think you have it bad? You think you have it bad? I mean, you know, I, my dad uh, apparently listened to uh, the podcast where I talk about him getting arrested for hitting my mom uh, with a bottle. And uh, he's like, oh, we had jet, literally his response was, we had jet skis and like we were on the, we, you know, we had a big house, like what, what still. And I'm sitting there going, man. And that's the, and that's the environment I grew up in. I craved affirmation and I Amen. still do. I still do. And, you know, and that's the way to my heart is to be like, you know, I really like that you're trying, you know, I can see that, you know, when people tell me like, I know like, and that's the thing when you're depressed, you know, we all have depression, especially people with PTSD. And somebody says that if you can only give 10% today, and 10% all you have, then you're given a hundred percent, John. That's when, so when, true. when somebody said that to me, I was like, holy shit. And you know what? I, the, the, the damage of being depressed and staying in bed. Yes. I still had that. And I had to figure out, you know, how to, how to cope with it and, you know, start doing mindfulness and find the right therapist and all this other stuff. But it didn't put on excess damage, like make me feel shitty about myself 24 hours a day because I had a clinical issue. I was depressed. And, you know, when people, when people, you start to surround yourself with people who are like, yo, you need to take it, you need to take it easy today. Like, I know that everybody else is out working or, you know, doing sports and blah, blah, blah. You know, you, you have other issues that, you know, they don't have and you need to, you know, give yourself space and time to allow the symptoms of those things you know, to do what they need to do without you trying to push through Cause that's where anger comes from. That's where totally. I was pissed off. I was like, why can't I get out of bed? Like, why can't I do, why can't I brush my teeth? Like, dude, that's the most common thing is like people who can't brush their teeth and you feel like you feel like shit, mm -hmm. not just, not just smelling and personally, but you're like, I, 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 I am worthless. Everything that these people say about me is true. 
then all of a sudden you're, you climb out of your depression and you look back and you're so confused over what that was. It's normal. It's completely normal. So, you know, I mean, your stories, you know, is I'm telling you, man, it's, it's something that a lot of people need to hear. And I'm, I'm just really glad that you came on to talk about it, man. It's, I know there's much, I know there's much more to talk about too. So, so I do have one more thing to say before we're finished up. Yes. So first of all, yes, I, I never knew how relatable I was. I was alone my, my entire yeah. life. I was alone, man. And now I have a platform where I reach an average of 10 million people a month. Yeah. And in this time, I have received hundreds of thousands of comments minimum of people saying, this is me. You're describing me. What is going on? And my favorite way of responding to them is going, actually, I'm describing me. But what you're now realizing is that you're a hell of a lot less alone than you ever thought you were. Peter, what's his name? Peter Shankman. Is, he, he was a You are literally yeah. Peter Shankman on a large scale. Yeah, man. But now let me let me talk to the to to the listeners for a second because I want to describe to you what Johnny and I are in this world right now. I am somebody that had difficulty with my neurodiverse brain that brought me into addiction, di- difficult times, and loneliness. And I spend every second of my day now making sure that nobody ever feels that way again. I make sure that people feel less lonely than they ever have, make sure that they understand why they're addicted. And I push as hard as I can. I don't care if I ever make a dollar on what I do as long as I save a life. That's what I'm trying to do. Johnny is somebody that needed somebody to talk to, needed somebody to be able to reach out to. And he took the time to build a platform that will make it that everybody has a voice. Everybody has the ability to have this happen. And we didn't have this growing up. I want to give you a very, very phenomenal quote that has literally changed my life from the amazing Tony Robbins, where he says, if you're going to blame a situation for all the bad in your life, you got to blame it for all the good that's in your life. Oh, my family man. neglected the hell out of me. And what, what am I now? A man that will never neglect anyone in his life. My family made sure that I, they, they never cared about learning about my medication, learning about what was going on in my brain. So when I have a child, neurodiverse or not, anxiety or not, anything that they got, you're damn sure I'm going to be picking up a book. I'm going to be hiring a proper therapist. I'm going to learn how to help my kid in every possible way and give them every exception on life. Yeah. One more time. If you're going to blame the situation for all the bad, you need to blame it for all the good. If you had terrible parents, that means that you're going to be an amazing parent and make sure that you use that as reference towards yourself when you're about to change someone else's life. You don't have to develop an app. You don't have to develop a million follower platform in order to have a voice. You can change one life and it will, it will mean everything. Man, you're so right on, man. And, you know, through suffering, through all of this stuff that you guys are going through or listening through what Matt and I have both gone through and we still do go through, we still struggle. Both of us. I know that the fact that I see the world and humanity differently because of the amount of pain I've been in Mm -hmm. is, is it is everything to me. I wouldn't take it back for a second and people call it empathy. People call it elevated consciousness, whatever it is. When you go through something like Matt just described, like you guys have heard me describe and other people on here, even though you don't tangibly see things happening on you or to you, or you're not losing weight or you're not changing it, you're growing in empathy and consciousness and nobody will ever be able to take that away from you. And when you finally do figure out how to use it and you will, it will change everything for you 
and the people around you because people who can truly empathize with somebody else who is struggling are the Peter, whatever his name, yeah. Peter Shankman's and the Matt Rakelbooms and me. And, you know, I, that's my gift now is I just understand you. I understand that you're not a bad person. I understand that you're not lazy. I understand that you're not stupid. And I understand that you're not weak because people called me weak because I was scared, but I had anxiety. I had anxiety. Anxiety makes you afraid and fearful, but not of your neighbor breaking in and stealing your, you know, your, your mower out of your backyard. I was afraid that the world was going to collapse. I was afraid that everything that I was doing was implicating all these people. And I was hurting thousands of people at one time, all of this stuff that you guys never think about. Uh, that people who don't have anxiety don't think about, I was constantly thinking about, and I just assumed that everybody else was going through the same thing. I just couldn't handle it as well. So the weakness, the P words, the whatever else you could call me, I believed it. And now I'm here to tell you what I've been through, what Matt went through in that car. We're not weak, guys. You're not weak. You're a survivor. If you're listening to this, you're a survivor and we need you in the fight. We need your empathy. We need your consciousness because the world's getting darker and there's more people who are, you know, like Matt's parents who just didn't really understand and, you know, they, they treated him poorly. There's people like that in everybody's lives, but there's, but there's not a whole lot of people like Peter Sharpman and Matt Rakelboom and Johnny McCoy. So if you're struggling right now, keep going because we need you in the fight. We need you on this side of the team. So absolutely. You know, as a final note, Johnny and I didn't get here because we weren't in pain. Yeah. Our pain created the people that we are. And if you are in pain right now, if you judge yourself, if you hate yourself, first of all, I want to tell you that you can change it. This is a part of your story. But secondly, you're going to become the amazing person that you were born to be because of the pain that you're in right now. Show me a great man that is the son of a great man. You can't. Very, very rarely. Yeah. Pain is something that creates who we are. And you, if you are in pain right now, I understand that you don't understand, but you will one day. And that is said from one successful person to another. And this will pass. It will pass. I love that one. It will pass. So y'all hang in there. Go download the app, Apple Store, Google Play. Follow us on social media. Leave us a comment, a review. Other people see them. And, you know, that's just the, it's just a light for other people to see who are riding their lawnmowers or whatever else that they're doing. And they'll, they'll be able to connect with somebody else who can, de who can describe to them what it is that they're experiencing. And they'll, they'll truly feel not alone. And go to Matt's, uh, Matt Rakelboom. So Matt Rakelboom's, uh, he's on TikTok, Instagram uh twitter i mean he's on everything but uh we'll put him you know in the description of this um he's got some really great content you guys can hear um you know more of his story and uh and his approach to you know healing go listen to his stuff uh he's an awesome guy and you guys will see more of matt um you know talking about white flag not only on his social media but uh you know for us as a company you know as he starts to um, you know, kind of expand his, his public speaking portfolio. So reach out to white flag. If you want, uh, Matt or myself or anybody, you know, affiliated with the team to, 
you know, kind of come to where you are and speaking at an event or whatever. We've, we've been doing that for about a year now. So Matt, it's been amazing having you on, man. I, uh, I, I'm pretty sure that we're going to have you on another episode. Uh, if not, if not just let you and brave Dave and maybe me, maybe the three of us get back on here and do it together. But, uh, Definitely. you know, you, uh, you are a, you know, you are a prize man and we are, you know, uh, we are thrilled to have you a part of the white flag team. And I, you know, I'm just glad that you're in my, you're in my community because I can relate brother. I appreciate all the opportunity that you've given me so far, Johnny, and I'm looking forward to doing so much more with you, man. I appreciate this.